good morning, everybody. We are in a series where we are walking through four different escape stories in the book of Acts. And so I want to invite you to actually go ahead and reach for the Bible you brought with you or the one that we've provided for you. We're going to look at a fantastic story today in the book of Acts, starting in the 16th chapter in the 11th verse. And while you're turning there, a couple of, couple of items of preamble. The first is don't you feel like we should just pause in this service and, and pray for Chuck's family and his wife, Lib, and the, the imprisonment that, that they live in of uh, frugality? And so I, I feel like we should take up a love offering just for the heat in, in your home in that regards. The second thing is, is that earlier this week, I was, um, I was teaching a doctoral seminar at Fuller Seminary in uh, Pasadena, California, and while we were uh, getting ready and kind of launching into one of the days, it was still somewhat early in the morning when a somewhat ashen-colored face student came up to me. I could tell that he was kind of scared. And he came forward and he said to me, look, I'm, I'm going to have to leave. I need to go back to my community. They need me. He's from the Thousand Oaks area of California, and his family was, his church family was reeling from the connections and loved ones and friends that had experienced the shooting in, in that place. He's like, I've got to go. Of course you've got to go, I said. Let us know how we can continue to pray with you and for you. Well, it was later in that day when they were planning the vigil that was taking place that night in their church, and they were gathering as a community to sing and to, to pray together when they got the call as a congregation that they needed to evacuate the building because of the fire that was barreling down on their community. He went home and got together with his wife and his three-year-old daughter and they hunkered down, hoping that the fire would go in the other direction. It did not. They had to evacuate their home. And then Pastor Dave and his family fled to a friend's house. It was only about three hours later that they had to flee that house. They have clocked this fire, my friends, at one point as traveling and consuming 80 acres in a minute. That is how fast this fire can spread. And so it was the next morning when I heard again from Pastor Dave that he was now two counties over and was letting me know that he wasn't going to be able to make class that particular day. So prayers for Pastor Dave, his family, his congregation. And the reason that I tell you that story is that it's one thing to read about the news. It's an entirely other thing to be in the news. It's an entirely different experience to read a story about escape. It's another experience entirely to need escape. It's one thing to read about, to hear about a rescue. It's another thing to be in the midst of a rescue. And so I invite you to not just hear and observe but enter into God's larger story for your life, Acts chapter 16, starting in the 11th verse. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. 
and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak with the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to, Paul, to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. It doesn't say it there, but it probably means because it was a lot nicer than the tents that they were staying in. Once when we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she had predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Let's pause there for a moment. That might be the only time I know of in the scriptures where a miracle happened because somebody was annoyed. (laughs) When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar, advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison door open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At the hour of the night that the jailer took them and washed their wounds, Immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. What do a wealthy female fashion executive, a slave girl, and a loyal soldier all have to do with one another? Not much on paper, right? They all come from different places. They actually come from different races. The fashion executive, Lydia, she's Asian. The slave girl is Greek, and the loyal soldier is Roman. They are on different stratospheres economically from one another. 
I mean, Lydia is in charge of a thriving business. She has multiple homes, we know. The slave girl is probably in a place where she is being manipulated by those who are trafficking her. The loyal soldier is probably going through the motions at work until he can collect a pension. In today's terms, the fashion executive could be found at Chops eating a good steak. The slave girl would be on English Avenue. And the loyal soldier is probably punching the clock, heading home, cracking it open a beer, reclining in his lazy boy and watching Monday night football. These people couldn't be in any different arenas. They're also spiritually different from one another. The fashion executive, she's religious. The slave girl is haunted by her past and what has happened to her. The loyal soldier is stuck in a routine. They don't know one another. They've never met one another, but they're in today's story and they are confronted with the same reality that they need God. It comes crashing into their lives. All of us are trapped by something. Even you, as you come today. The fashion executive is trapped by her success. The slave girl is trapped by the injustice that's been done to her. The system that holds her in path. And the loyal soldier is trapped by his duty, his obligation. You may be trapped by your ambition. You may be trapped by your need for approval. You may be trapped by an addiction or an appetite. You may be trapped by image, entitlement. I don't know what traps you, but I know that in some form or in some fashion, this life incarcerates all of us. And so one of the most important questions uttered from one of the most important chapters in the early church's history is this question, what must I do to be saved? And before I go any further, I just, uh, we've got to acknowledge that we don't like this question very much because there's an implication in this question that if I need to be saved, that there's something there's something wrong with me, that there's something inadequate with me, that I don't have what it takes, or, or maybe that there's some sort of need in me that I alone can't overcome and achieve or fulfill. I'll never forget when I was in Summit, New Jersey, I was pastoring a church there, and we were doing a congregation-wide book study on spiritual disciplines with this book by John Ortberg that was called The Life You've Always Wanted. Summit, New Jersey is a bedroom community of Manhattan. Most of the working people worked in Manhattan and would commute back and forth via the train. There was this one guy who was in my particular small group, and I noticed that as he showed up for group one particular night, that he showed up with a copy of his book, but that the book didn't have the dust cover jacket on it anymore. And I was kind of teasing him a little bit and asking him if he had lost it. And he said, no, I didn't lose it. I took it off. The book looked very plain on the outside without the, the dust jacket on it. He said, Rich, honestly, I ride the train and I didn't want other people to see what I was reading. I didn't want people to see the title of the book that said, The Life You've Always Wanted, and I didn't want people to know that I don't have that life. 
The life you've always wanted can't be found in the square footage of your home. It can't be found in the year and the make and the model of your car or whether or not your name is on the outside of the office of the firm. The life you've always wanted can only be found in one place. And let's look more closely to see where it can be found. Chapter 16, verse 22 of what we read said this, that the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped, beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. They had been wrongly accused. They had been wrongly imprisoned. They had been wrongly abused. And now they are put into stocks. A lot of the times as modern people, we tend to think of kind of putting someone's legs in stocks as kind of an extra security measure. That's not really what it was about. It was an extra form of torture, of pain. And so how do Paul and Silas respond to this? Do they pick up the phone and call customer service? Do they complain? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Let me ask you, is that what you would be doing if you were in their position? Are you able to sing when you are in the midst of great pain. Next, what we discover is that there was this incredible, violent earthquake, that the whole prison, the ground, the bedrock shaken, that all the doors fly open, all the chains come off, and the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Why was he doing this? A Roman soldier would be held personally accountable for that of those who were entrusted to your guard and care. And so as we've seen earlier in the book of Acts, that if these people had escaped, that he would receive the full brunt of whatever their punishment was supposed to be, whatever their torture was gonna be, and he didn't wanna go through that. He's about to take his own life to escape that when all of a sudden Paul shouts out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The doors are open, the chains aren't on, And the jailer, having experienced an earthquake, is now trembling for himself. And he falls down. And he asks what he needs to do to be saved. If you have never asked that question, I don't think the earthquake was for Paul and Silas. God didn't need an earthquake, as we've seen in other escape stories. God doesn't need an earthquake in order to set people free. The earthquake's not for Paul and Silas. It's for the jailer to wake him up. A couple of years ago, I was on steady leave, and one of the things I love to do on steady leave is to go to the mountains. I love the rhythm of waking up early in the morning and plowing through a lot of reading and writing and researching and dreaming. And then when my brain starts to turn to mush mid-afternoon, I love to go for a hike. 
I was staying, uh, in, borrowing a friend's home up in the Rocky Mountains near Aspen, and I decided on this one particular day that I was going to do a more aggressive hike than usual. I was going to hike to the top of Electric Pass. It goes up about 4,000 feet in elevation from the trailhead. You get to experience the beauty of Cathedral Lake. And so I am making my way up the mountain. I am so excited. I get past Cathedral Lake. I'm starting to work my way up. I'm gone past the tree line. And I'm just a boy from Waco, Texas. I don't know a whole lot. I had no idea why they called it Electric Pass. I do now. Because flying from the other side of the mountains, which you couldn't see because of being so close to guarded, that part of the sky guarded by the silhouette of the mountain, was a storm that came raging and flying over Electric Pass. I don't know a lot, but I know that you're probably not supposed to be at the highest point. Did never make it to the top of Electric Pass. With all the booming and the thunder and the rain, I am booking it down the mountain. I am trying to make it down to safety to the tree line, scrambling over a lot of rocks when all of a sudden the hail starts to fall. I'm from Texas. You could say that all hail broke loose. All the hail's coming down on me. And uh, I could literally take my jacket off. I am holding the jacket above my head while I'm running down the mountain. I'm scrambling through a boulder field when I hear the crack of what I thought that was thunder but seemed louder than thunder. And then I hear the rumbling that follows that. There is a rock slide avalanche. Now, fortunately, the rock slide avalanche is not on my side of the mountain. It's on the other side of the valley. But it sounded like a freight train that was about to hit me. I remember my first thought was, if I die out here, Kelly is going to kill me. (laughs) I went out to be closer to God, and I got what I asked for. All of this is to say is that if you have never asked that question, what must I do to be saved and never asked it with your knees knocking, with your soul trembling in the midst of an earthquake, then you've never really asked that question. For you, in that moment, just like the soldier, faith is no longer hypothetical. It's personal. That faith is no longer something to be probed or tested. Faith is something to be trusted. What must I do to be saved? And they answer the question by saying this, believe in the Lord Jesus such a loaded, explosive phrase. We read it today because for us, we don't use the word Lord except for kind of in a religious or spiritual or Christian kind of context. For them, Lord was a common term. No, there was no king but Caesar. There was no Lord but Caesar it was supposed to be in that time and day. They were not asking him to just kind of switch religious jerseys. They weren't just asking him to give intellectual assent that this Jesus did these things in a particular moment in time. They are asking him to completely upend his life, to totally change his allegiance from serving one person who claimed to be God 
to another. Believe in this Lord, not that Lord. That's the only way to have the life you've always wanted. It's ironic to me that the only people who are free in today's story, not Lydia, not the slave girl, not the Roman soldier at first, none of them are free until after they encounter the gospel. Paul and Silas are in jail and they're as free as could be. They're free to go, they're free to stay. But freedom always comes at a cost. Today being November 11th, we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day. This is a picture of the celebration of Armistice Day um, in the city of Philadelphia. And it's an incredible thing to remember in our history that 100 years ago, that so many paid a deep and great sacrifice that we might be free. My family is here in this country because of what happened during that war. My family's farm in East Germany became the front of the trench warfare that took place in that part of the world during World War I. And so they had to flee east to Russia where a little thing called the Bolshevik Revolution happened. My great-grandmother saved every penny she could from the selling of eggs so that one by one she could send a child across the Atlantic to this country called America, a land of freedom, a land of opportunity. Freedom always comes at a cost. For my great-grandmother, it was one egg at a time. I remember hearing the story for the first time from Vic Pence over 20 years ago when we worked together in Houston. It's the story of Babette's Feast by Isaac Dennison. And it's the story of a woman who used to work as a fantastic chef in the, uh, the country of France, working for nobility, aristocracy. She finds herself impoverished and working for a dour, sour pair of sisters in the country of Denmark. Every day they ask her to cook the same meal, boiled fish, boiled potatoes, boiled fish, boiled potatoes, every day, over and over again, the subsistence meal. Because they took literally and out of context what Jesus said when he said, take no thoughts of food or drink. They misunderstood what Jesus meant in that moment about not worrying about it, thought that you couldn't have it, that it was bad for you. Every day, Babette would buy a lottery ticket because she dreamed of going home. One day, the unthinkable happened. She won the lottery, 10,000 francs, which was a huge sum of money at that time. And Babette decided as a going away present that she would throw a feast. She asked 
the leaders of the town. Let me throw a feast for you in the same way that we would in our country of France. At first they resisted, and then eventually they said, okay, not for our sake, but for yours, we will let you throw us this party. And so began the parade of exotic and exquisite preparations for the food. The first course was a soup, which was delicious, but they dared not show it on their face that they were enjoying it. And then came the wine, and their hearts were strangely warmed. And the next course, and the next course, and before you know it, they're smiling, they're putting their arms around one another, they're laughing, they're celebrating. One was even overheard as saying, did our Lord also not say that we are to love one another? They began to feast the the pack of Pharisees that they had been began to melt into a community of love. One of the sisters went back into the kitchen to an exhausted Babette and said, Babette, how can we ever thank you? You have not only fed us, you have changed the way that we see the world. We are going to miss you so much. And Babette said, oh, I'm not going anywhere after all. How could you, Babette? It was your dream to go home. Yes, it was my dream, but I have no money. What do you mean, Babette, you have no money? I, you, you won the lottery. Babette said, yes, I won the lottery, but I spent it all on the feast. I spent it all on the feast. Do you know someone else who paid it all, who spent it all on a feast for you and me in the kingdom of God? The last verse of today's story is this, that the jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household, no longer trapped, no longer imprisoned. He's finally free. And I pray that you can find that joy as well. I pray that people in debt and jobs will find their purpose. I pray that the empty will find their fill. I pray that the wealthy will find their real treasure. I pray that hypocrites are exposed, that slaves are liberated, demons are banished, and sinners are redeemed. I pray that swords will be put away. I pray that guns will be laid down. I pray that flames will be put out. I pray that hearts will be warmed, that homes will be opened, and that people will be saved. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your race is or your family of origin. It doesn't matter what you have or what you lack. Don't just read the good news of the gospel. Enter into the story. Don't just be inspired by great stories of rescue and escape. Become a part of the story. It's your story as well. And if you will believe, if you will not just test it but trust it, you can become the kind of person that'll never stop singing. And so let us pray.
We begin today, God, by praying for those who are in the midst of the great trials. For Pastor Dave, for a Presbyterian congregation in Thousand Oaks and many others who have been forced to flee. Lord, help us to not just hear the news, but to enter into your good news. We're so fixated in all the things that differentiate us from one another. Will you confront us with the reality that we need to be saved? We are so trapped, God, trapped by entitlement and image of approval. Help us to tremble, to fall to our knees to experience the earthquake of your grace and ask what we need to do in order to be saved. God, help us to trust you. We're thankful for those who have paid a great price, none more than you, and teach us to feast, to find the joy and to know of your great and unending love. Could it be, God? And this we pray in Jesus' name.